0: Well, if in the Lord's providence I ever come back here, I'll know to sit during the offertory time. <laughs> Opening your Bibles to the third psalm. It should be somewhere near the middle of your Bible. The third psalm. That's uh, page 722 for me. I don't know how helpful that may be for you all. No, very glad that you're here. Um, very glad that you've allowed me to be here this morning. I am grateful for another opportunity to preach. I am um, slowly working my way through the Psalms as a supply preacher. And so maybe by the time I've run my course, I'll get 150 sermons in this series. Um, I was uh, able to preach at a little church called College View Baptist Church for a couple of years before moving to Kansas City with my wife, Lauren, a couple of years ago, and um, loved to preach the word and minister the word. Now. Um, working uh, at the seminary, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, and studying there and grateful for that. But I'm excited because th- there's not a more um, enjoyable place to be than open around the word with God's people. And then the joy is we get to do this, all of us, regardless of what gifting we've been given or what calling we've received weekly, uh, sometimes more than that. And so I hope you're as excited to be here as I am this morning because God has a word for us this morning in the third Psalm. Now, um, I am a student, and it does keep me busy alongside uh, my staff role there um, and trying to be a good husband and um, son and brother and those kinds of things. And so one of the things that I have to do is find ways to stay motivated to study and to write Uh, to read sometimes dense academic books. Uh, Maybe some of you out there love to read and you love to read very technical works, uh, but many of us struggle with some of this. And so one of the things I found is helpful to me, and you may find this odd, I actually got a little bit of grief for this the other day, is that I watch movies in the background while I study. Now, I know what you're thinking. That cannot be productive. And I assure you, it's Probably less productive than just really being able to focus well, but it has helped me a lot to just dig in and do the work. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm just an odd duck or what it may be, but I really like to watch. And again, you may think this is a little odd, like sci-fi and action movies in the background. I like all kinds of movies, uh, so I, you know, this is not a, a service for only sci-fi uh, nerds. Um, if you're like me, but I mean, I watched all the Star Wars movies while I wrote my last big paper, all of them, all seven of them. The last time I wrote my big paper, seven, sorry, we are up to nine now, aren't we? Sorry, fellow nerds. I watched all of those, and so I, I don't know what it is, I just like the action, I like what's going on, but really if you watch fantasy movies, you watch sci-fi movies, you watch war movies, I watched 1917 the other day, viewer discretion is advised, but it's a fantastic story about bravery and valiance on the battlefield. If you watch romantic comedies even, there's, there's at least one common thread. Something goes wrong, Someone has to step in and save the day, no matter what. Now, if you're watching the romantic comedy, stepping in and saving the day is flagging down the plane before your beloved leaves and confessing your undying love, and then um, we skip past the part where y'all went to counseling for all the stuff that just happened, and then you get happily married. But no matter what kind of story it is, someone has to step in, speak up, and save the day. Uh, this morning, we've already sung <laughs> So many songs about our salvation as believers in Christ. Now, if you're a young person here this morning who hasn't yet professed faith in Christ, you're someone who's here as a a guest, just not sure where you stand with the Lord. or It's been many, many years since you've um, talked with him and sought to worship him with his people. Um, I don't want to assume we all have the same understanding, but if you have any concept of what it means to be saved as a Christian, you've heard it this morning. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford, but God's mercy is more, and Jesus paid that debt. We've heard that over and over and over again this morning, and I'm so grateful that we sung songs from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, my wife and I's very favorite song ever, written many, many years ago, to songs written 50 years ago to songs written five years ago that all have this common thread. Something went wrong. We heard the bad news, and yet God stepped in and saved the day. We're going to hear in Psalm 3 this morning, the very last verse, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And I hope as we hear it, we won't just jump straight to the things we've sung about this morning. We have to talk about those things this morning. This is going to be a Christian worship service. But I hope that as we really dig into Psalm 3 and try to understand what was going on in the author's life, that we'll have a better understanding of what it means when we say that our salvation comes from the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there's nothing more important we could do this morning than to hear from you in your word. Get me out of the way. I pray that this passage of scripture that your Holy Spirit has inspired, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is our only hope in life and in death, would shine through this morning, would Speak through what we're talking about this morning and that the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts that we would come to know you more or even for the first time. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The third Psalm opens, not in verse one, but with an inscription. Now, uh, your English Bible version didn't just add this little inscription as sort of a uh, description of what's going on. So sometimes in your Bible, right, you may have uh, something that kind of gives a brief description of what the next paragraph is about, and someone somewhere, probably in Illinois, because apparently all the Bibles are printed in Illinois, added that to help you. This inscription is original. This inscription is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The Psalm of David, if you, if, if you don't know, and you, you likely do, David was the first good king of Israel, the second king that Israel ever had. So Israel was God's chosen people. God came to Abraham. The world had been made a mess of, split into nations and tribes and languages as a judgment against their pride at the Tower of Babel, if you know that story. And God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you're going to bless many nations, and your offspring is going to bless the world and be blessed by them. Eventually this becomes a, a nation, the nation of Israel, brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus where they were slaves. And he brings them into the promised land. Are these stories ringing a bell to many of us this morning? And God says, you don't need a king, I'm your king. You don't need a fantastic military strategy. Here, how about this, walk around this city's walls for a while and then yell. God's making a point. You don't need these earthly things to deliver Your people, I deliver you. I delivered you out of Egypt, and I brought you into the promised land. But eventually, they wanted a king like all the other nations. They wanted someone to make them feel a little bit more safe and secure. So God says, okay, if you want a king, if you're rejecting me as king, I'll give you a king, King Saul. If you know anything about the career of King Saul, King Saul was not a good king. He was so insecure when he was being crowned, he was hiding in the luggage, it says. He was so insecure, but that insecurity turned into pride and fear, where he was not trusting anyone. He was paranoid about all the people around him, including a young man named David, a young man that God had anointed through the prophet Samuel and said, I have rejected Saul as king. David is going to be king. David knew what it was like to be weak. David knew what it was like to be unsafe, and yet he trusted the Lord, whether it was the bears and the lions when he was a young shepherd boy, whether it was the giant Goliath who was defying all of God's armies. David knew what it was like to be secure in God's strength because he knew that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he becomes the king eventually. He doesn't reach out and and, and dethrone Saul and take over. He had the opportunity a couple of times to end Saul's life. But he says, you know, if God has promised to make me king, he'll do it when he wants to, how he wants to, and I trust him. He knew salvation, deliverance, belongs to the Lord. So he was secure in his God. And so eventually he becomes king, and, and it goes well, and he unites the land, and all the tribes of Israel are united and entrust David. And eventually something happens. His family starts to fall apart because of his own sin and his uh, weaknesses. He's not perfect by any means. The Bible doesn't paint us any perfect human pictures save one. And so his son Absalom, the one oldest son, who was likely going to have the throne, decides it's my time. He does exactly the opposite of what his father David had done, and he, he tricks the people of Israel into making him king. He, he sends out people into every tribe, all 12 tribes of Israel, and he says, okay, at the right time, all together, say Absalom is king. And so he goes from Jerusalem, the capital where David is, over to a place called Hebron, and I know this is a history lesson, but hear me out. This poetry belongs to a part of a bigger story that we're going to hear about, and that's how we're going to understand it this morning. He goes over to this town, and he says, okay, all once now, and they say, Absalom is king at Hebron, and David knows, I'm surrounded. There's there's nowhere I can go. Literally every single corner of my kingdom has now been taken over. doesn't mean every single person was against David, but enough people were against David. He was unsafe, so he left. He left his capital. He went out into the wilderness. He fled with his entourage. That's what happened when he fled from Absalom, his son. And this is what he had to say about it. We don't know if he wrote this years later reflecting on it. We don't know if he was writing it as he was leaving. I tend to think he was. We're going to see in a moment. David is on the run. Well, what does this look like? First, in verses 1 and 2, David was surrounded by slanderers. Surrounded by slanderers. Let's read 1 and 2 together. Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. David was surrounded by slanderers. Not just a few, many. You hear hear this three times in here? My foes are many. Many are rising against me. There's a great song about this. Uh, My foes are many, they rise against me, but I will hold my ground. Um, specifically because I know it will embarrass my wife, Lauren. I used to lead worship and I would sing that song and I couldn't help but imagine like a really small foe, a miniature foe who got taller as he came against me. My foes are many, they rise against me. And it kind of ruined the song for me. And that is not at all what he's talking about. He's talking about a terrifying number of people. He's talking about being surrounded on all sides by people who are, yeah, threatening, who, who, yeah, could wield a sword against him, but the main thing he complains about is what they're saying about him. This is, more than anything, a war of words. And what are they saying? What's their accusation? There is no salvation for him in God. Now, is he talking about conversion? Is he talking about being born again? Is he talking about, um, I was a sinner, and I was cut off from God, and I got saved? Not exactly, Salvation just kind of generically thought of here as deliverance, as being brought from unsafety to safety, from being made secure by being delivered kind of in a military way. We need to understand that if we're going to understand what our salvation means. There's no salvation, there's no deliverance. Now, are these people who don't believe in God? Do they worship Baal or some false god? Well, according to the inscription, no. This was a time in Israel's life where largely they worshiped the Lord. So it's not, a, it's not a question of can God deliver. It's God doesn't want to deliver you. It's slander. So imagine how difficult it must feel to have his whole kingdom turned against him, it feels like, many surrounding him. Just imagine if you, if you had just one person in your life who just, could not get along with you, maybe somebody at work, maybe a family member who just could not stop slandering and accusing you of things. But if you have enough people around you who know you, who love you, who have your back, and they say, just don't, don't worry about that. We all know better. Then you can manage that. But what if it's those people? What if it's the people you love? What if it's the people who have normally stood by you, who are saying, you really messed it up this time. You're really in the wrong here, when you know you're not. Now there's a time for a rebuke, And often we deceive ourselves, but just imagine being in David's situation. It's not his fault. This isn't on him. And yet they're saying there's no salvation for him in God. I have a friend who's been uh, in a branch of the US military for about 12 years now. He was a paratrooper, um, and he's now a chaplain candidate. He's been called to be a pastor. He's going to move from Kansas City to Alaska with his family here in a few months. Uh, He and his wife spent some time in Alaska, and they're excited to get back there. Not a lot of healthy evangelical churches in Alaska. Not a lot of men who want to uproot their families and go be pastors in Alaska. Not a lot of families who want to go with that man to Alaska. And so we're just praising God for the provision there. But something happened. And I I don't know all the details here, and I I do not mean, and the last thing he would want would be to disparage any particular person in his chain of command. But he was under the impression he can step out because he's a candidate, he can answer this call. He signed up knowing God may call us to the mission field, God may call us to leave, God may call us to Alaska. And so when he said, okay, guys, God called, we got to go, he gets on the phone with one guy, and then another person, then another person, then another person, all saying, no, no, that's not how it works. You have to stay with us until you retire. Can you imagine? God has finally answered this provision. And all these people around me, not one of them, will admit that I'm allowed to go. He's surrounded. And there's one person who he had spoken to in the past who who could speak up and say, you know, actually, I told him he could, who refuses to answer. Now, again, I do not know everything going on there, but just imagine how he feels. Because I imagine that's a little bit how David felt. Right? Not only is he surrounded by enemies, but the one person The one person he's always relied on, even when he's on the run from King Saul. They're saying, he's the reason why you're in this situation. God has forgotten you. There is no salvation for him in God. David was surrounded by slanderers. So what does he do? Does he despair? Does he go rally the Philistines and say, you know what? I'll give you guys a little bit of your land back if you come make me king again. Does he form some kind of political alliance with someone who, you know, they, they don't worship Yahweh, but, you know, this will help in the long run? No. David was surrounded by slanderers, but David spoke of his Savior. David spoke of his Savior. He wrote a poem. This is not what you do when you're a fugitive. This is not what you do when your family and your old kingdom want to kill you. You don't write a worship song. But that's what King David did. Let's read verses 3 and 4. Or start with verse 3. But you, O Lord, it's addressed to God. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, literally all around me, my glory and the lifter of my head. If I am surrounded on all sides, quite literally, of my kingdom by enemies who oppose me, the Lord is a shield all the way around. I could not be more safe. There is no weak point there's no vulnerable point for David. Well, there was, physically, literally. A bigger army could come take out his honorage, and he could die. But he knew as long as God is on his side, nothing can happen to him. He says, you're my glory. If my honor, my reputation have been slandered, if my integrity is questioned, God is my reputation. God is my honor. God is my glory. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks if the Lord is my glory. He's the lifter of my head. If I've got no reason to lift my eyes, if I should be hanging my head in disgrace, if I should be in dis- desperate desperation and, and despairing for my life, I can lift my head if God is on my side. He's got a very high view of his God and God's promise to him. David spoke of his Savior. This is who he is in verse 3. So what does he speak about him? Well, He, he looks at salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. We're going to see this. Verses 4 and 5 says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. He's writing here about what's happened in the past. He's remembering. He's speaking of his Savior's provision in the past. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. We don't know exactly which time he's talking about. Maybe it's while he's on the run. And he, he's looking back on this scenario, maybe weeks later, years later, and saying, I prayed to God in that situation. And spoiler alert, God brings him back to his throne. And so he's saying, look back at what God has done for me. Or he's thinking about times in the past. Times when he was on the run from King Saul. Times when he was fighting Goliath and others. Times when he was surrounded by enemies and yet prevailed. And he goes, this is who my God is. This is what my God has always done for me. He spoke of his Savior's Past salvation. He answered me from his holy hill. Now, he could be talking about Jerusalem, where the tabernacle is, where God's presence would come and and atone and make sacrifices when the priests would come in. Um, He may be talking about the heavenly Zion. He could be talking about the the throne room of God in the heavens. And and these two things, especially in the Psalms, kind of blend together. It's this idea that um, the real holy hill where God is is in the heavens but he, he extends that to this place on earth regardless if God is in the heavens it doesn't matter if David's been kicked out of Jerusalem he doesn't need a physical location because God is with his people wherever they go whoever they're facing whatever is surrounding them he says I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill Verse 5, he does the one unthinkable thing you do. He rests, he sleeps. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. If he didn't trust God, he could have very easily said, I'm not, I'm not taking any kind of rest. I'm going to stay up all night and be vigilant because I'm on the run and I'm outnumbered. But if the Lord has a shield about him, if the Lord has promised him that he's going to reign, then what can happen to him? Uh, A famous preacher said, we are immortal until our life's work is done. What he meant by that is God has numbered your days. God has planned your days. God knows exactly what he wants you to accomplish in this life. Not just your plans for your fulfillment and your ambitions, but to serve others and to, to, to know Christ and to serve the local church. And so there's no one who can kill you before God wants you to go to heaven. Praise God. We can trust him. Now, that doesn't mean we do the most dangerous things we could ever possibly do and be unwise stewards, because the thing that God may want to do in your life is to teach other people not to go you know, bungee jumping without checking all their safety. But the point is, David knew God was in control of his days, and so he trusted the Lord. He lay down and slept, and he woke again. Why? Well, because I had really strong bodyguards, or we found a really ni- neat hideout, or Absalom's just not that good of a leader. No. Because the Lord sustained him. They say there's no salvation for him in God. He says, that's my only salvation. That is my only hope. And it's enough. He may even be looking back the day after. So when you read this story in, in, in First and Second Samuel, and you read about David being on the run, you read that that first night God supernaturally intervened so that he wouldn't be found. And he may, this may be the very next day after he had to leave Jerusalem. He's writing the song and going, he woke up in the morning and went, I'm still here. I need to write a song about this. God needs to be praised. I tend to think maybe that's what's going on here. He spoke of God's past salvation. He also spoke of present salvation. Now that may seem kind of odd because uh, you have to be moved from one thing to another thing to be saved. right? You have to be let out of one thing and into another thing to be saved. And so it may be better for us to talk about this as security. What does it mean if God has saved and God will save, then I am secure. I'm safe. That's what that means. It means I'm safe. Verse 6 says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I just need one person if it's the Lord. Doesn't matter how many foes, I just need one if it's God. So he expresses his trust. David spoke of his Savior's past salvation. He speaks of this present safety and security he has in God. And then finally, he speaks of future salvation, he prays for future salvation. Verse seven, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Isn't that the call? There's no salvation for him in God. And yet the Lord has saved me in the past, he's keeping me safe now, so save me, God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. And we shouldn't probably think of like a slap here, we should think of this imagery as breaking someone's jaw. That may seem a little bit strange to us, right? Isn't Jesus who said, turn the other cheek? Well, yes. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But he recognizes that if someone's going to step in, speak up, and save the day, you know the other thing that always happens in those stories? The bad guy loses. This is a reality. This is not pie-in-the-sky Christianity. There's a bad guy who loses. We'll talk about that in a moment. Who is the bad guy? What does it mean that he loses? Here, when God is dealing with a nation and he has a king, it means that they're actually going to die. This is not tame stuff. And if you think that uh, Jesus just comes and he's, he's the nice version of God or something in the New Testament, read the book of Revelation. It's the lamb who's bringing wrath on people. It doesn't get more sanitary once you get to the New Testament. Not at all. He says, strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Think of a lion prowling around looking for something to devour, and it's got something right in its jaw, but God shows up. He steps in, and he saves the day. He prays for future salvation. David was surrounded by slanderers, but David spoke of his Savior. Why? Verse 8. This is the main point he wants to make in this whole poem. Not just for his situation, but for everybody. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, is his prayer. Salvation belongs to the Lord. They're saying there's no salvation for him in God. But God is the God who is consistent. God is the God who, if he promised David that he would reign, and not only that, but that he would have a descendant, that a son of David, that one of his offspring, one of his children along the line, would reign on an eternal throne. Psalm 110 says he would reign at God's right hand, not just in, in earthly Jerusalem, but in that heavenly Zion, that holy hill. And so if that's going to happen, David's not going to die in disgrace on the run, rejected by God. He prays for future salvation because God steps in, speaks up, and saves the day for his people. Okay, be very easy for us at this point, probably, if we've been versed in preaching, if we've been to many Bible studies, it's, it's very possible that we're used to hearing Old Testament things that are kind of more military, more kind of national, and kind of going, okay, what are the battles in your life? You know, what's your Goliath that you're facing? And I don't mean to discourage that kind of thinking. The Bible is for you. It really is. But there's a a whole lot of story here still to go. We said that the story of David is how we understand this poem, but there's more to the story, isn't there? And, And here's maybe the most important question. If God stepping in and saving the day means that the bad guys lose, how do we know we're not the bad guys? How do we know that if we were in Israel during that time, we wouldn't have joined Absalom's side? Well, There's a middle step that we really need to take because there is more to this story. See, David is restored, and David's son Solomon, not Absalom, does become the king. And through Solomon's line comes a man named Jesus. We know that Jesus is the eternal son of God who always existed before. There was creation who always will exist, equal to the Father and the Spirit, three in one, a trinity And yet, in fullness of time, was born. A human being added humanity to his divinity. And he came from the line of David. He came to the people of Israel who were facing a different kind of oppressor. Yes, the Roman Empire was was over them. And so when he started doing things, doing miracles, teaching with authority, they started thinking, maybe this is the guy. Maybe he's going to get this empire off our back. Maybe he's going to reign from a throne in Jerusalem, and we're going to finally have everything we want. Oh, Lord, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Give us back an independent state. And yet, he doesn't come on the scene and be the king that they want, does he? He comes and says, turn the other cheek. He comes and says, the law is good. I fulfilled the law. There's something greater than Solomon. There's something greater than even the temple here. He was looking for a higher throne. And to get there, he had to first go to a cross because their biggest enemy wasn't bad Israelites. Their biggest enemy wasn't some Caesar, some Roman governor. Their biggest enemy was sin. Their biggest enemy was Satan, Satan. Their biggest enemy was death. And if he's really going to be this final king, he can't just deal with these puny human empires. He's got to take the lion out. He has to strike the teeth of the wicked. So what does he do? Well, first, he's surrounded by slanderers. I wonder if he read these words and and, and thought of his own ministry. Lord, how many are my foes? I've got Pharisees. I've got Sadducees. I've got my own disciples. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends. Judas, who'd been with him for three years, right next to him, who he had entrusted the treasury of his ministry to. Have you ever been betrayed like that? Jesus knows what that feels like. He didn't stay in heaven's throne. He knows what it means to suffer as a human being. No other false god in any religion in the world can say that, that our God created the heavens and the earth, knows what it means to suffer, not in some kind of weird way that a God would maybe suffer, but what a human suffers, because he was fully human. He was surrounded by slanderers, but he spoke of his Savior. He spoke of the Father. He spoke of God. He said, what you're doing now, what I'm doing now, Peter, you can't understand, but you will understand it. When he goes to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was silent at his trial, barely spoke a word. He could have called 10,000 angels, the scriptures say, to come deliver him. He didn't need some human military force, and yet he had to go. There was no other way because Jesus, the son of David, did what David never could have done. He lived a sinless life. He lived a perfect life. Which made him a perfect sacrifice for your sin and my sin and the sin of all who will believe in him. Jesus spoke of his Savior and sacrificed himself. Can you imagine? What do you think about Easter Sunday, the very first Easter Sunday? I don't know if they had Easter eggs, probably not. They probably didn't dress in very brightly colored clothing, but they didn't need any of that because they had the risen Son of God. Imagine. Psalm 3.5 on that day. I lay down and slept. Jesus was dead, as dead as dead gets. But imagine him going, okay, so, uh, you know, what happened in there, Jesus? You know, what was that like? He said, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. If this has never been truer, this has never been truer than about Jesus, that he died. There's no worse situation you can be in. When you're on the run from the military, sleeping is a dangerous act. But he died, and he woke again. He was raised up, for the Lord sustained him. Jesus spoke of his Savior and sacrificed himself, and God saved the day for his people through Jesus. He accomplished the sacrifice once for all. He was resurrected, defeating the power of death. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, the truest throne, the real holy hill, and he now provides present salvation and security for his people he intercedes for them he prays for them he sends the spirit to seal them when they repent and believe in him he guards them all their days he will hold them fast and there's a coming day where there will be a future salvation we just get glimpses of this in the here and now don't we We just get glimpses of victory in the here and now, but there's a day coming where no one will be able to deny. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and his blessing is on his people, and that Lord's name is Jesus Christ. God saved the day for his people through Jesus. And we said this. This this does apply to us, doesn't it? But not, hey, just trust God more. It'll turn out okay. Or if you trust God enough, he'll give you everything you want in this life. There's a lot of ways we can go off the rails with that, but if we know the rest of the story, if we know where Jesus is and what he's done and that he's coming back, then we know what we're supposed to do. God's people seek security in God and speak of their Savior. God's people seek security in God and speak of their Savior. In the past, we may say, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, there's no salvation for him, for her, and God but we know what he's already done for us. We look at the past. We look to the cross. We look to the resurrection. We look to the ascension, and we say, if God did that for me when I was dead in sin, what will he not give for his people's good? What will he not hold back that his people don't need? What will he not protect his people from? This takes eyes of faith, doesn't it, because... You and I probably will not go through this week thinking, everything's working out exactly as it should. Maybe, I I hope you have that kind of week. And if you do, bless God for that, because it's a preview of what's to come. But that's not most weeks for us. Jesus says, through many trials, you have to enter the kingdom. Paul said, I'm going to suffer. I count myself uh, worthy of nothing but to finish my course. I want to suffer for Jesus. So how is that security? (laughs) Security. How is that present salvation? The Bible in the the New Testament uses uses all, past, present, and future, to talk about the salvation of Christians. So what does it mean to be presently delivered? Well, who's our real enemy? Is it your security? Is it your sense of self-worth? Is it your uh, popularity? Is it uh, people's recognition of you? Is it that uh, the lawnmower always cranks? Is it that Nothing, no sickness ever touches you or your family. It's that no one you love ever suffers or dies. Is it that everyone's happy with you? And and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and, and mothers and fathers are never estranged and alienated from you? Is that your biggest problem? No. Just like David, all those things can be surrounding you on every side, but if you're right with God, There's no better word you could hear but that you have been made right with God, and it's only through Christ that that can come. We seek security in God, we seek the kingdom first. That's what we do. So we pray about all these things estranged relationships, opportunities at our work, financial security, good health. the the evangelism, the the conversion of our friends and loved ones. We pray for all of these things. And when we see them happen, we bless God and say, that's a preview of what's to come, because there's a day coming where we won't have to pray about those things anymore. And yet, we pray about them knowing where we are, knowing that God may withhold those things, knowing that this is still a cursed world, knowing that Jesus' reign in the heavens comes mostly through transforming you and I here on earth, not through some big military, political, social change. And so we pray knowing where we are in this story. We seek the kingdom first. That doesn't mean that you got to spend all your time volunteering at church. I really hope that you're serving here. But it, it doesn't mean that your nine to five is irrelevant for the kingdom of God. So let's think about that for a second. How would David deal with that coworker who's constantly nagging or 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 constantly berating or constantly uh spreading rumors well he probably wouldn't be a doormat he probably wouldn't you know just roll over but he certainly wouldn't kind of oh well maybe i'll start a rumor (laughs) maybe i'll kind of put a put a word in or sort of sort of nudge someone that's matters what would jesus do in that situation how do we seek the kingdom if we have security in god how do we live well we don't assert ourselves to get what's ours We trust the Lord because salvation, deliverance, belongs to the Lord. What about our family members who just, children who just won't listen, who just don't care or who who actively work and hate against us? I have a dear friend and brother in Christ whose oldest um, revealed, he's a pathological liar, and he has um, completely denied the faith, completely denied their family, not spoken to them in over a year. What do you do? I'm so blessed by his example of seeking the Lord, but it's hard. What do you do? Do you grow bitter and resentful and hateful toward your child? Do you grow bitter and resentful and hateful toward God? No, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't matter what you're surrounded by. You're secure in him. These things are for our ultimate good. He's using them, Romans 8.28 tells us, to make us look more like Christ as we read the rest of that chapter. Whatever we do, we're seeking the kingdom and speaking of our Savior, reminding ourselves in worship services like this in Bible studies like the one you had just before this hour and your own private devotion and worship and even as you go about your day in conversation with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you speak of your Savior and remind yourself who he is, what he's done, what he will do and the security you have in that. And finally, we, we think of the future. We think of the future when we will be utterly secure and safe. Even the sin that we still war with today won't touch us there. No earthly opponent, no spiritual opponent, sin, Satan, and death thrown into a lake of fire where they can touch us no more. And we will speak of our Savior. We won't go, man, we were the in crowd. We really figured it out. We really got right with God on our terms, on our time, when there was still time left. We will throw all our trophies, all of our crowns down at the feet of Jesus and say, if not but for his grace, we would have had nothing, but because we had him, we have everything. I don't think there's any passage of scripture that better illustrates this past present future reality in the New Testament. Um, there are many good ones than Titus 2, which we read earlier. Titus 2:11 through 15, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's the past. Here's the present, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see that? That the grace that he's given trains us for this. It's not something we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps or someone scolds us enough and we become holy. It's remembering what Jesus did for us that gives us grateful hearts that want to love and serve him. And then we think of the future, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I was so glad that we read Ephesians 2 this morning as well because there are very few passages of scripture that encapsulate this past and present like these passages do. Whatever we face, whether we are surrounded by slanderers or our own sinfulness and temptation or just the sickness and sorrow of a cursed world, we look to Jesus and we say salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Here in just a moment, there's going to be an opportunity for us to respond to what we've heard this morning. You're invited to sing. You're invited to pray at the front here. You're invited to pray where you are There are uh, deacons and I'm sure others in here who would love to talk and pray with you. I'm going to be standing at this very front pew and praying for you as I sing, but happy to sit and talk with you as well. If you don't know Christ, if you are stirred in your heart and know that you need this, maybe you've known about it for a long time. Maybe you made a profession at some point, but if you know today that this is for you, please come talk to somebody. And more importantly, Look to Jesus. Pray to him. He'll save you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you know that you've been walking in sin and need to confess, find someone that you can share that with. If you know this morning that you just want to go be encouraged and pray with someone, do that this morning. This is a time set aside for exactly that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love. We are so grateful that you would send your son to become human, to become limited in that way in his human nature, and to suffer on our behalf, to be surrounded by those who said there's no salvation for him in God, and to make a sacrifice for sins. That he sits at your right hand, that he lives to make intercession for his people, he doesn't have to sleep so we can, that he sends the Spirit to all who believe and seals us for that day of redemption when he will come back and we will be free. We're so grateful, Lord. Pray now that your Spirit would work in the hearts of your people.